Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. While you're doing that, I'm going to take a moment and pray for us. Father, this is your word. And um, so we ask that you would tend to it now, the presence and power of your spirit, so that you might pierce and penetrate our hearts with its truth. Would you empower me by your spirit now to speak faithfully and graciously and powerfully the the truth of your word, and we pray that you would open all of our ears and all of our hearts now to receive its truth and to be transformed by its truth from one degree of glory to the next. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in the movie The Grand Canyon, a character played by none other than the great Danny Glover makes a statement that every single one of us knows to be true. In the movie, one scene shows this wealthy lawyer played by Kevin Klein. He's driving and he takes an alternate route to avoid some bad traffic and eventually he finds himself in a a pretty bad neighborhood at night. And to make matters worse, his luxury car breaks down there. So he makes a call for a tow truck. But before the truck arrives, he's met by a gang of young men armed with a gun and threatening violence. Eventually, the the tow truck does arrive, and Danny Glover gets out of the car. He starts hooking up the truck to the car, and and, uh, without a word to anyone. And yet at this, the the young men take offense. You know, this this tow truck driver is interfering with their endeavors here. And so they confront him and begin to to threaten him. But then Glover, in something of a a fatherly way, takes the leader of the gang aside, and he, he says to him, man... The world isn't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Anyone who's lived more than a few seconds can identify with those words. It's a truth that we all have tra- tragic first-hand experience with. All of us here this morning could look at the, the state of our world today with all of its wars and rumors of war and international tensions. And we could look at, at the, the, the violence and uh, incivility and loneliness that increasingly marks our nation. We could look at the brokenness and poverty present in our very own city. We could look at the lack of peace and the presence of pain in various homes and lives. We could look at the posture of our hearts this morning, the words of our mouths, the actions of our hands, even this past week. And as we do so, we, we know down to the very core of our aching hearts exactly what Glover means when he says everything's supposed to be different than it is right here. Of course, in the past several weeks, we've been looking in Genesis 1 and 2 at the way everything's supposed to be. But this morning, we transition now to the chapter where everything went horribly wrong. Where the world we saw depicted in the first two chapters of Genesis begins to unravel, where where paradise was lost, to echo John Milton. And we're going to look at this chapter for the next three Sundays together before we take a month's break from Genesis, because in it we come to see 
what it is that that's, that that's at the root of this world's brokenness, at the heart of this world's brokenness. You know, there are many opinions as to what's at the heart of the world's brokenness today. Some might think that, that what's at the heart of the world's brokenness is, is, is economic injustice. Others, perhaps, a, a lack of good government or, or perhaps a, a, a lack of proper education or whatever else. And, and so, you know, perhaps all that's needed then is to set the world straight by producing good economists, better politicians, quality teachers. And of course, that would all be good. Those things might very well address symptoms of what is wrong with our world today, but Genesis 3 actually goes much deeper than all that, and it shows us that what's at the heart of what's wrong with this world is the problem of sin and alienation from God, and that's a problem no economist, no politician, no teacher could ever adequately address in and of themselves. We need the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God, and so we need a Savior. Genesis 3 also promises us. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're looking now at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing with open ears and open hearts to the words of our God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, for modern Western readers like ourselves, Hebrew narratives can be quite frustrating at times. The reason being that often enough, when you're reading Hebrew narrative, you'll find yourself wanting considerably more detail than you're being offered in the text. The Hebrew narrative often tells a story without the kind of detail and explanation that we're used to in, in modern Western kinds of writing. And so we find ourselves thinking sometimes and, and saying to the author of biblical books like Genesis, could you not give us a bit more detail here? Could you, have, could you not have, have paused here and just explained some more? Could you have filled this part out a bit more. I still have questions, and yet, we're willing to put in the work. There is an invitation here. Well, one biblical scholar likes to call Old Testament narratives Hebrew meditation literature, because that seems in part to be what these kinds of texts are meant to produce, is a people who meditate on the story and who begin to put some of the pieces together by considering the text in a careful and reverential way. 
And that's what I'd like to, to lead us in doing together this morning. I'd like to, to lead us through and take us through our text as it breaks down to three main sections here. The first we find in the first part of verse 1, where we're introduced to our ancient foe. The second is found in the second half of verse 1, on to verse 5, where we see his age-old fibs. And the third part is in verses 6 and 7, where we see the awful fall. Look with me first, though, at our ancient foe. Verse 1 begins, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And here, we're abruptly introduced to a serpent without much detail or explanation. We're not told where he comes from. We're not told what he's doing here. He's actually a beast of the field we see here. And so he shouldn't even be in this garden, really. And perhaps more surprisingly, he talks, right? He talks. And of course, readers sometimes today object to the truthfulness of our text here on account of, well, there's a talking snake in it, right? Can we, just, we can just say that here. Snakes talk in Disney movies, they talk in Aesop's fables, but, but of course not in real life, right? It's, it's not uncommon to hear objections like, you expect us to believe that, that what's wrong with the world can be explained in a story involving a talking snake and a piece of forbidden fruit. That seems like the stuff of legend from a primitive people who just didn't know any better than we know today, right? Setting aside what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, we, we need to understand that a talking snake wasn't meant to seem normal here, right? No, something is, is definitely shown to be off in this. this. This should have been Eve's and Adam's first indication to not trust this creature because something, something else, some other thing is obviously at work and in this creature, using this creature as a clever ploy. Of course, you might remember when we were in Mark's gospel some time ago, the story of Jesus casting a, a legion of demons out of a man and into a drove of pigs. Well, apparently, demonic entities can indwell and possess animals like pigs and presumably others. And that seems to be what's happening here with this snake, which should have served as Adam and Eve's first indication that something is seriously wrong here. And of course, as you read on in the Bible, you come to find out more specifically the who that's behind or perhaps inside the serpent, it's shown to be none other than the devil or Satan himself. You can see this most explicitly if you look at uh, Revelation chapters 12 and chapter 20 and how both of those chapters refer to uh, this, this, this being as that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Now, of course, who is the devil? Who is Satan? Those titles very literally mean slanderer and adversary. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of lies. He is a liar. He is our enemy. He is the enemy of God's covenant people. And of course, like all creatures, this creature, this being was originally created as good. He was created as a, a powerful angel. You can you can. See what happened with him in places like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and the book of Jude. That this, this angelic being was not content to live in devotion to God forever and ever. No, he, he wanted to be like God himself. And so in his pride, he rebelled and fell and brought many other angelic beings with him. And he's here revealed as seeking to take us with him as well. And we would do well to, to maybe just pause and dwell on this for a moment. 
if for nothing else, just because of our, our modern tendency to overlook such realities. You know, I grew up in a, a Christian tradition wherein I would occasionally run into some individuals who had um, an unhealthy obsession with Satan and demons. You know, everything, everything was the devil's fault. There were demons hiding under every rock. Not for all, but, but, but for some in that tradition. But if, if some Christian traditions can run the risk of, of having an unhealthy obsession with Satan and demons, per, perhaps ours sometimes runs the risk of, of ignoring him altogether. Perhaps sometimes we forget that we have this, this crafty, powerful, formidable enemy who wants to destroy us and destroy God's work in the world. Perhaps sometimes we've been too overly influenced by the naturalism of our age which seeks to, get, to give exclusively natural explanations for all problems of sin and suffering and systemic evil in the world. All the while, there is a spiritual and powerful enemy that we don't give a second's thought to. Could that be true of us at times? Perhaps we need a reminder from time to time that that we have this enemy, that our enemy is spiritual, and so our fight is a primarily spiritual fight using primarily spiritual weapons of prayer and the Word of God and the like. C.S. Lewis confronts both extremes on this subject. When writing that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's, One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or magician with the same delight. Do not forget that you have an enemy, an ancient foe, as Martin Luther called him, whose craft and power are great, who's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal, he says. We have a formidable and crafty and powerful enemy who is seeking to destroy what is good and true and beautiful in the world. And yet, at the same time, we don't need to be afraid. We need to be aware, but, but we don't need to be afraid because, listen, he is crafty, it says here. And that, that, that word crafty here means like prudent or, or skillful or wise. Like he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's a powerful creature. He's intent on doing us harm and destroying us and destroying God's work in the world. Yes, but even more, look at what the end of verse 1 calls him. It calls him a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It calls him a creature, relieving readers from any illusion that this enemy is somehow God's equal, that the the devil and evil are somehow equal opposites to God and his goodness locked into an eternal, unending war. No, in the creator-creature distinction, this enemy belongs in the category of creature with us. As Martin Luther once put it, even the devil is God's devil, right? So be aware, be on guard, be in prayer. Arm yourself with the word of God. Some of you, some of you are, are newer Christians, some of you young people, you're, you're young, you arm yourselves with the Word of God so that you're able to confront this tempter with God's truth, which we'll see here as we move on. It's very, very important. Moving on, we, we read about our serpent's age-old fibs, his deception and temptation of Eve. 
And we would do well to pay close attention to this because this is not the stuff of, of legend or remote historical information. In the fall of Genesis 3, we fell. We see our enemy at work here. And therefore, as, as Eve's children, we're subject to the same deceptions and temptations today. Even, even if we never see Satan at work in an immediately obvious way in our lives, we hear the serpents hiss every day in these age-old fibs. The first of which is that our God is narrow-hearted. The second half of verse 1 here begins, He said to the woman, Did God actually say... And even there, from, from the get-go, notice even just the first two words that this serpent, he's depicting God differently than Genesis 2 has. Remember in Genesis 2, we, we see God revealed again and again as the Lord God. And this word translated as Lord is actually the very covenant name of God, revealing something of God's closeness and kindness to us. Revealing Him to be the compassionate and generous God who kindly condescends to be in covenant relationship with His creatures, and yet Satan won't call Him that. He just calls Him God. And he does this because he wants to depict our God as not being generous and kind, but as narrow-hearted and miserly. And so he goes on, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Was that what the Lord God said? A serpent knows what God said, because in a moment, he's actually going to quote God's words more accurately than Eve is. So he knows what God has said. He knows that the answer to this question is a firm negatory. This is not a genuine question, okay? It, 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 let's, let's be clear. It's okay to ask genuine questions about the Word of God. Okay, if you're confused about something, if you're struggling with doubts, if something isn't quite making sense to you, that's okay. It's okay to ask questions around here. But the serpent is not asking this question in good faith. He's, he's asking this question in this way because he's trying to get Eve to doubt and disbelieve the goodness of God. He's trying to paint God as being narrow-hearted. He's trying to portray God as being ungenerous and tight-fisted toward his creatures. This God, he wants Eve to believe, is holding out on you. He's withholding good things from you because he's not good and generous himself. And of course, this couldn't be further from the truth. What, what, did, what did God actually say in Genesis 2.16? He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. The Lord God is not ungenerous. He is not narrow-hearted. He is a God he is a big-hearted God who overflows with goodness and loving kindness, which is the very reason why he's given life and breath and abundant provision to humanity. It's why he condescended to be Adam's and Eve's and our covenant God. He is not narrow-hearted. And the most repeated words in the Bible reveal him to be the exact opposite. And what is the, the, Moses asks the Lord, in Exodus 34, he says, reveal your glory to me. I want to see your glory. Do you remember what the Lord says to Moses? This is his glory. The Lord, the Lord. 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then those are the most repeated words in the entire Bible. Why? Because they go to the very heart of who our God is. As one pastor puts it, this is the banner hanging over everything else God shows us about himself. And what does this banner show? It reveals our God to be an abundantly, bountifully, richly generous and kind God. He is the the kind of God who gives life and breath and everything and who has provided and gave access to every tree for eating in this garden paradise that he made for the man and for the woman. There's just one tree, he says, was off limits. There's just just one tree he gave as a test to Adam and Eve to test their covenant faithfulness to him in turn. There's just one tree they were not to eat from during this, this probationary period. Why? Well, because as one theologian puts it, to do what God desires merely because one cannot do otherwise has no moral worth. To do right when there's never been opportunity of doing wrong is not moral behavior. The opportunity to do otherwise must present itself. So God did present one tree that was off limits and it was a test of Adam and Eve's faithfulness to him. And yet in Eve's words that follow, you can already see the lies taking root in her heart. She says in verses 2 and 3, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but... God said, she doesn't say the Lord God said, just God said. And then she misquotes the very word of God. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve evidently never went through Awana. God never said you can't touch the tree. He never said that. Could have built a tree house in this tree for all God cares. You see, she's here adding to the word of the Lord. She's adding to his instructions, being the first in a long line of religious legalists throughout human history who add to the commands of God. And in this, you can already see she's beginning to view God as narrow-hearted and tight-fisted, isn't she? Her view of the Lord is already being warped. The lie is already beginning to take root in her heart that the Lord God is narrow-hearted. But then if the serpent began by questioning the character of God, he he moves on to tell outright lies now. As he goes on to claim that our God is not to be trusted. The second fib. Verse 4 goes on, but the woman, or the serpent rather, said to the woman, You will not surely die. That directly, that's a direct contradiction of what God has said, as well as something of a direct quotation, just with the added negation. Remember what God said in Genesis 2 17 that in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And the Hebrew was emphatic, we saw. A a literal translation would be to say, you will die, die, which is a a way of saying in Hebrew, you will exceedingly die. You will absolutely die. You will surely die. 
Right? Eve didn't get it right. She just said, lest you die. But the serpent, knowing precisely what God had said, said, you surely will not die, die. So now, not only is God narrow-hearted, Satan claims, but he's also a liar. He's not to be trusted. And notice here that the first outright heresy recorded for us here in Scripture is a denial of the doctrine of judgment. The serpent says, don't, don't, don't take all this so seriously. Don't take God and His will so seriously. You can sin, you can disobey, you can reject God and rebel against Him. God will not judge, you will not die. Just as he questioned the goodness of God before, so now he directly contradicts God's justice. And all the while, the Word of God tells us that it's precisely because of God's goodness that he is just and that he judges. I didn't actually finish that quotation from Exodus 34 earlier. The most repeated words in the Bible, it does begin by extolling the goodness and abundant generosity and faithfulness of God, but it still goes on to say, yes, He is a God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, but He is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God who is good and just, and he will therefore judge the guilty. And so, yes, Eve and Adam and each individual who can hear my voice right now know this for certain. Sin and rebellion against God brings death. From the beginning here, it brings spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we're all by nature dead in our trespasses and sins, dead to the things of God, spiritually dead. And it's why all of us will eventually taste physical death as well, returning to the dust from which we were made. And it's why for all those who don't repent and trust in this generous forgiving God that they will experience what Revelation 20 calls the second death. An eternity of conscious torment in a lake of fire that God has prepared for the serpent and all his cohorts. Because God will by no means clear the guilty. That's what awaits all who choose and stubbornly remain in rebellion against this God. And yet Satan says the exact opposite. Is what awaits us if we, if we rebel against this God, which brings us to the last fib, wherein the serpent tells us that, that rebelling against God will exalt you. Rebelling against God will give you a higher, better, happier, more fulfilled life. He says God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Judgment and death he says, that's not what awaits you. Being like God, that's what awaits you. Of course, Adam and Eve were already like God insofar as it was good for them to be like God. They were made in God's image and likeness, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But oh, Satan says, there's more. You can be God instead of God. This God who is narrow-hearted and not to be trusted, you can dethrone him from your life and take the throne instead. You can be the God of your own life. 
God is holding out on you, but there's a higher life available to you. All you must do is reject God and his will and set yourself up as your own God instead. D.A. Carson explains this, saying that this very passage shows us that we're not to think of sin here as merely breaking a few rules. If I put myself in the place where I decide what is good and evil, if I put myself in the place where I become, by self-proclamation, quasi-autonomous, I have de-godded God. I am now the center of the universe. Now, God, if he, she, or it exists, jolly well better serve me or I'll find another God, thank you. This means sooner or later you and I will be in conflict too because I am at the center of the universe, but you, you stupid person, you think that you're at the center of the universe. And there is the beginning of fences and greed and lust and theft and racism and war and cruelty and power-seeking. All, all, all because I will be God. Do you hear the serpent's hiss today? He's not creative. He's not doing anything new or original. He's telling the same old lies, the age-old fibs. He's echoing the same old deceptions and temptations today. Don't you hear it in the slogans of our day, like, you do you? Follow your heart. Look within yourself. Nobody knows you as well as you do. Only you can determine what's best for you. Are, Are those not echoes of The serpent's words here in Genesis 3, wherein we're told to to define good and evil for ourselves, or wherein we should be the sovereigns over our own lives, that God is not to be trusted, that he is narrow-hearted, that we should not bow to God, but become God instead. And listen, every single area of our lives in which we fail to live in glad acceptance of God's goodwill is an area in which we have fallen prey to these very lies. Just for example, maybe it's the Bible's sexual ethics. Maybe when we see what God's will is for sex as revealed in the Bible, that it's meant for a man and a woman bound together in the covenant of marriage. But, but you know, often today, that, doesn't that seem too restrictive to us? Maybe we think that, that, that God is holding out on us in this. He's narrow-hearted. He's not to be trusted with sex. It can't be all that bad. It can't be all that damaging. I, I think I should define what's good and evil when it comes to sex on my own. Maybe some of us as parents do this with our kids. Perhaps we, we might load up our weekly schedules with so many activities, so many events, so many obligations because we're trying to give our kids a bright future. All the while, we're so busy that we're not actually discipling them We're not raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't pray with them or read the Bible with them. We don't take them to church faithfully. What are we saying? We're saying, God, I don't trust you with my kids. I think I know what's better for them than you do. I think I might be a better judge of what's right and wrong when it comes to my own kids. Maybe it's something else entirely. Whatever area of our lives in which we're not living in glad acceptance of God's goodwill is an area in which we've believed these age-old fibs, and we do this, and we live in these ways because Eve gave heed to the fibs and temptations of the serpent, and as her children, we've been doing the same thing ever since. 
which we turn to see here lastly in verses 6 and 7, the awful fall. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Derek Kidner says of this, so simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. This is essentially where everything begins to unravel. The start of everything being different than the way it's supposed to be. Eve sees that the tree is good for food, and it's a delight to the eyes, and desired, it's to be desired to make one wise. Eve, Eve chose here to trust the serpent's words, to trust in her own perception, to follow her own desires, and all over trusting and desiring and gladly accepting what God has said. And this is really what's at the heart of what's wrong with our world. Humanity rebels against God. That's that's when things get all topsy-turvy. That's when things begin to be the way they're not supposed to be because we, we were made to live with and under God alone and with dominion over all the earth and over the living creatures. That's the way we were created to live and flourish. And yet here in Genesis 3, everything gets turned upside down. Humanity seeks life above God. And in so doing, actually lets a creature have dominion over us. And so like a clock with a gear getting out of place, we step out of our proper place. And our world no longer ticks, no longer works like it's supposed to. And this is not just Eve here. But as verse 6 goes on, we see Adam, our, our covenant head, first come into the picture. He's, he's been notably absent in the story so far, hasn't he? leading you to think that maybe he's just busy, not around, out doing man stuff. But shamefully, he's actually been there the whole time, watching, listening. And, and this is shameful because as Eve's husband and as the covenant head of humanity, Adam should have stepped in way before it ever got this far. He was charged with working and keeping the garden. The beast of this field has no place here. He should have chased this serpent out or crushed its nasty skull altogether at first. He should have protected his wife out of love and care for her. And as the one who heard God's very own words in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, he ought to have stepped in jealous for the glory of God and the vindication of God's good character and shut this whole conversation down. Make matters worse, 1 Timothy 2, 14 tells us that Adam was not actually deceived here. He says that the woman was deceived. Adam was not deceived which makes this so much worse. Adam didn't actually fall for the serpent's lies, and still he stood idly by while this, he's seeing this situation so clearly, while his bride believed the serpent's lies, and yet he still took and ate the fruit leading to our demise. And the effects of this death are immediate. Verse 7, 
And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, and they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We do see here, as, as D.A. Carson puts it, that Satan told a half-truth and a complete lie. Because their eyes are indeed opened here to, to know good and evil in a way like God. And yet in a way very unlike God, too. God does know good and evil. But that's because He's all-knowing. He does not know evil by direct experience because He is not evil and cannot do evil. God is, is good. He is pure goodness. He is goodness itself. But He does possess a kind of knowledge of evil by nature of His omniscience. Omniscience means knowing everything. But now here, humanity begins to know good and evil as well, albeit in a very different way. Humanity now knows goodness only as a memory and knows evil by direct experience, having committed an atrocity now themselves. You know, a doctor may well know a disease by study because it's a doctor's business to know. But someone who has the disease knows that disease too, just in a very different way. And just so, humanity knows itself to be evil for the very first time. And what's the result? Guilt, shame. They knew that they were naked, it says. And that's getting at more than just a lack of clothing. This is communicating that Adam and Eve now knew a sensation that really each of us are well familiar with this morning. We, we all keenly know what it is to feel guilt and shame and to be afraid and want to hide because of it. For, 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 for any of us, myself included, if, if we were to put on this screen here a video of our lives this morning, of everything we've done, everything we've said, everything we've thought in our minds and felt in our hearts, even just over the last week, would that not cause us to run away from this place and never look back? So I've done things and said things and thought things and felt things in my life that make my face hot with shame and give me a pit in my stomach to think that maybe anyone would ever know about it because they're so vile and disgusting and wrong. And we all know that sensation, don't we? It's a sensation humanity is well familiar with tracing back to this very moment. And that's why they sew fig leaves together. To make themselves loincloths, they try to cover themselves, and it's, it's meant to look pathetic to us, right? I mean, it looks pathetic. You're putting fig leaves on yourselves? But the reality is, each of us have done this. Each of us have tried to cover our guilt and shame with any number of methods and devices. We try to put our best foot forward and display ourselves as happy, good people on social media. Some of us try to cover up with outrage and indignation at all the injustices of this world, all the while trying to ignore our own guilt and shame in life. 
might try to busy ourselves with a frenzy of religious activity and busyness at church and doing good things in the name of Jesus, putting on a religious veneer over our shame. We try to cover it up by being knowledgeable and smart and knowing lots of good doctrine. All the while, these seemingly righteous and good things are merely methods of our hiding from the gaze of God and from being known by others. But friends, we will never adequately cover ourselves. We can never hide from the piercing, penetrating gaze of God. Here's the good news. We don't need to. Because our God is the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We know this. We can know this for certain because these words have been given to us in the unerring word of God. And more, they've been proven and revealed to us in the Word made flesh. You see, our covenant God, being so merciful, so gracious, so abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, He has graciously condescended to us. Not just in being our our covenant God, but in His stepping into our flesh and taking upon Himself our humanity. He did this in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And in taking our humanity upon himself, he became our new Adam, our new covenant head, and our very own husband. And as such, he has not sat idly by while we have been beguiled and tempted and deceived by the serpent's hiss. Rather, he, he stepped in and he faced the serpent for us. And you can read about this. We discussed a couple of Sundays ago in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1. Where the Lord God clothed in our weakness, clothed in our humanity, went into the wilderness to there be tempted by this very same devil. And while the devil came to him, not once, not twice, but three times, again, misquoting and abusing the very word of our God, just like he did here in Genesis 3, our Lord God defeated the serpent and triumphed over him because he himself was rightly armed with the word of God. And yet is the only one who triumphed over Satan. As the only one who has resisted temptation and lived without sin, as the only one who has not rebelled against God and rejected Him, as the only one who has fulfilled the will of His Heavenly Father, as the only one who deserves life and life abundant from God. He actually reached out and took upon Himself our penalty for failing at every point. And He tasted death on our behalf. Because our our God will by no means clear the guilty. Right? He is just, and so he must judge sin. Your sin. My sin. Eve's sin. Adam's sin. The sin of all peoples. And therefore, we only have two options, friends. Our sin can have been judged on the cross 2,000 years ago on Mount Golgotha, or you can bury the judgment your sin deserves at the end of the age in the second death. The question for each of us is this, which will you choose? Will you gladly accept the will and salvation of our generous God? Or will you trust the serpent 
and your own judgment and the loincloths of your insufficient righteousness? Will you accept his payment and righteousness as all you need? If you do, you will be saved, you will be redeemed, and you will live with this Savior forever because he himself lives again being raised three days after death. And he will grant to whoever comes to him to share in his eternal life when he returns. Because he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is not narrow-hearted. He is worthy of our trust this morning and always. We will run to him and cast ourselves upon him. He will gladly accept us. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we know this act was so simple and so hard it was, its undoing was that your son has now come and tasted poverty and death so that take and eat might now become verbs of salvation. And so as we come to this table this morning, remind us, show us in the drama of the bread and the cup what Christ has done afresh to our hearts. Remind us of how deeply broken and sinful we truly are, but how great and gracious you truly are, that there is more grace in you than there is sin in us, and do that so that we might be filled with all confidence and assurance and comfort this morning as we receive the bread and the cup. In other words, seal these very words upon our hearts this morning, O God, as we approach the table so that you might be glorified in our lives and so that we might be filled with strength to represent you well in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in the city to which you have called us. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.